challenge was convincing the jury that it was a lot more serious than just the amputation of the tip of the finger. He had essentially lost all use of his dominant hand, and we had our client there for the entire trial, and he had the visible shakes of his injured hand. I say to clients during the trial prep, we walk into the courtroom with the odds stacked against us because insurance companies spend a lot of money with lobbyists and legislatures and the public to convince the pool of jurors that exist in the communities around us that most lawsuits are frivolous. Welcome to today's episode. My name's Andrew Iacobelli with Iacobelli Law Firm. And on this show, we talk about your rights if you're injured in an accident. Today, I'm joined by a guest. I'm really happy to have him here. It's Dan Hessel. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thank you for having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. And uh, can you just share a little introduction, Dan? Tell us about yourself and what you do. Sure. I'm a, a trial lawyer based in uh, Philadelphia, but I handle cases pretty much all over the East Coast. I've been practicing law for almost 30 years, and I opened my own small boutique law firm called Galco Hessel, along with one partner named Jim Galco, about 15 years ago. And we handle all sorts of catastrophic injury cases on behalf of victims, product liability, construction accidents, medical errors, premises liability, trucking accidents, those, those kinds of cases. I had the pleasure of reading about one of your cases uh, in particular where you got a really exceptional result, I think, for uh, a client that had a finger injury. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. That's one of the highlights of my trial career so far. We had a plaintiff who had amputated the tip of his finger in an industrial machine, a large shear. And we tried the case to a Philadelphia jury a few years ago, and the jury awarded him $15 million. It wasn't really a huge surprise to our side of the case, but I know it was to the defense because it was more than just the loss of a tip of a finger. He had essentially lost all use of his dominant hand because of the significant nerve injury. So the defense looked at the case as if it were just a amputation of a tip of a finger, but we knew it was a lot more serious than that. And we were obviously pleased with the ultimate outcome because when you try a case to a jury, you just never know what they're going to do in terms of liability or on damages. That's absolutely true. And what were the, what were the major issues in that case leading up to trial? The major issue in the case was whether the machine, when it was sold, because it was 30 or 40 years old at the time of the accident, the issue was when the machine was sold, did it have this safety guard on the front of it? Uh, the defense claimed it was sold with the guard. We had evidence to suggest it was sold without the guard, and that was really the crux of the entire trial, whether it had the guard on it or not when it was sold. And there was conflicting evidence on that point. I think it came down to... Uh, the credibility of the defense witnesses. We caught them in some inconsistencies. We had some emails that we, we obtained from their files that were incriminating. And ultimately, the jury decided that it was sold without the guard and therefore it was considered a defective product under Pennsylvania law. Okay. So you had challenges on liability and damages, really, in that case. We did, and one of the challenges we had is the defense produced a brochure advertising this particular shear, 
And it wasn't just a similar shear, it was the exact same shear that was involved in our case. And through the miracles of tracking serial numbers on machines, they were able to show that the machine that my client was using when he was injured was the same machine that was in a brochure when it was originally sold. And in that brochure, it had the guard on it. So that was a significant challenge we had to show that either it wasn't the same machine, even though they had a pretty clear chain of custody, um, or that it somehow was removed after that photo was taken. Wow. And for our audience that might not know some of the legal terms, liability essentially means fault. Yeah, that's right. Every trial has essentially two different phases. The first phase is liability or proving that the defendant's was, was it fault or is legally liable? That's why they call it the liability phase. And in a product liability case, for example, you need to show that the product was defective. In a car accident case, you need to show that the other driver was at fault for causing the accident. And then the second phase of the trial is damages. So you try them all together and you don't know if you're even going to win the case. But generally speaking, you still have to present evidence of your damages and your injuries and your harms so that if the jury does find in your favor, they know how much compensation is fair to award to the victim. So there's the liability phase and then the damages phase or the injuries phase. And in that particular case, if um, you were not successful in proving that the, um, the guard was missing, you couldn't have succeeded on that case. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. The jury would have returned a verdict in favor of the defendant and our client would have walked away with nothing. However, they also would not have been on, uh, on the hook for any costs or expenses or any attorney's fee. The attorney's fee is contingent, which means my firm only takes a fee if we win the case or we settle the case. And if we go to trial and we lose, client doesn't owe us anything for our time. That's one of the risks and rewards of being a contingency fee attorney. Yeah. On damages, you talked a little bit about that early on. What what were some of the challenges there and, and how did you overcome those? The challenge was convincing the jury that it was a lot more serious than just the amputation of the tip of the finger. We did not have a large medical bill or did not have a lot in medical bills to present to the jury. Some of these cases, we have 200000 300000 a million dollars in medical bills that a jury can assess. In our case, we had between the medical bills and the wages that our client lost, it was about $60,000. And that can often serve as an anchor of keeping the verdict down low because the jury can award $60,000 for these economic costs and then feel like they're doing us a favor and award $200,000 for pain and suffering. That's one of the risks that we confronted with our case. So our, our job was to convince the jury that the medical bills and the wages that he lost we're just the tip of the iceberg. And we had our client there for the entire trial. And he had the visible shakes of his injured hand, uh, which were essentially nonstop. And the more anxious he got, the more his hand would shake. And the jury could just sit there for a week during this trial and just see these spasms and the shaking of his hand. And we think that had a huge impact on the ultimate verdict, even though it wasn't technically part of the evidence. It was just the visual observations of our client for the duration of the trial. And how long was that trial approximately? It was five days. We picked a jury a week before, which is the way they do it in Philadelphia. And we start with opening statements on a Monday morning and we got the verdict on a Friday afternoon. 
Wow, that's really efficient considering all the issues. Yes, it is. It is. Philadelphia really tends to move cases quickly and they don't waste any time. So we we got through that case pretty quick. That's excellent. So part of my practice, as you, as you know, Dan, is I practice both in uh, Ontario and in Florida. So Ontario, Canada, there are major differences to the way trials proceed in Canada and the United States generally. Share for us a little bit about how you decide to bring a case to trial. Yeah, that's always a difficult decision because you never know when you take on a case whether it's going to settle or whether it's going to go to trial. I think statistically, 95% or 99% of cases do settle. But generally speaking, the bigger cases don't usually settle until you're on the verge of trial and the defense and the insurance company knows that you're ready to go to trial. And that's when they'll start making reasonable and significant offers as opposed to early on in the case. Even the good cases tend to drag on for a year or longer through what's called the discovery process when you learn when you get information from your opponent and they get information from you. But ultimately, when you're on the verge of a trial, and I'm picking a jury on Thursday of this week on a case, the defense starts offering money. And what I'll do is I'll sit down with my client and I'll break down how much of that settlement offer they're going to end up with after we, be de- we deduct our fees and our costs so that they know exactly what they're going to put into their pocket out of the offer. A lot of times there's medical liens that have to be paid back. And then I'll give my clients some advice on whether I think it's fair or not fair, whether I think there's a good chance that we'll do better or worse in front of a jury. And if I can put a significant amount of money into the client's pocket, I present the issue to them really as one of a gamble. I can put X thousand dollars into your pocket. We can go to a jury trial. It's very unpredictable and you may get zero or you may get more, but it's ultimately up to the client on whether they want to take that gamble. And I'll just give them my my advice in terms of what I, how strong I think the case is or what the weaknesses in the case are. But ultimately, I'll let the client make that decision. What do you consider the most, I guess, important aspect of a trial if there, if there is one for you? The credibility of the plaintiff, the injured party, the person who's bringing the suit, and the credibility of the plaintiff's attorney, myself. And I say to clients during the trial prep stage that we walk into the courtroom with the odds stacked against us because insurance companies spend a lot of money with lobbyists and legislatures and the public to convince the pool of jurors that exist in the communities around us that most lawsuits are frivolous and that there are just people looking to win the lawsuit lottery. So we walk into a courtroom and we're looking at 40 potential jurors and our job, my job, is to change their biases and their beliefs in our favor and show the jury that this is a legitimate case, it's a legitimate injury, and that justice and fairness requires the defendant to pay for the harm that they've caused. And I tell my clients, if you say anything that's incorrect, not necessarily a lie, But if you say anything that turns out to be incorrect or I say anything that I can't prove, we're done. The jury's not going to listen to anything else we say. So more important than the facts or the defendant's credibility, it's always the plaintiff's credibility that's the most important factor in whether we succeed at trial. Yeah, that's an excellent point, actually. It makes me consider another point, which you brought up, which is juries and sort of the 
I guess it's the bias against the injured party because of misinformation, I would, I would suggest. What's your thoughts on a jury trial versus a judge alone trial for a civil matter? I am almost always in favor of a jury trial, even though it's more unpredictable than a trial in front of a judge. In the counties that I practice, the area that I practice, and it's more or less Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and a few other states on a case-by-case basis, I generally feel that we're better able to convince a jury, members of my client's community, their peers, that they have been wronged. And I think judges tend to see these cases all of the time. And although they are always fair, of course, they are maybe more hardened to the impact that injuries can have on a person's life because they see it all the time. And that happens to me as well. But when you have just 12 or 14 random people from the community, they aren't as hardened to that. And and the injuries and the lifestyle changes can have a bigger impact on people like that. And that can also help you win the case, even though the harm or the damages is the second phase, as we've talked about, Andrew. A lot of times the severity of the harm can influence the jury's decision on whether the defendant is at fault. And logically, it doesn't make sense, but that's a reality that every trial lawyer will will acknowledge. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. And it's interesting for me, again, going back to this dynamic of practicing in Canada and the United States, I think your view is the majority view among personal injury lawyers in the United States. Interestingly, the Ontario Bar, at least here in Canada, seems to think that it's easier to have a jury trial in the United States. And some of the personal injury bar in Ontario prefers, believe it or not, to have cases tried by a judge alone. And my view has always been that it's a privilege to be able to have a jury and the community uh, resolve these cases for a civil matter. It's more work, no question, to try a case in front of a jury. It's uh, You have to overcome, like you said, some of these biases. Um, but ultimately, I think it's a dangerous road to start to entertain the idea that juries be eliminated in civil matters, which seems to be kind of a trending thought here among the personal injury bar in in Canada, at least. So I'm glad you gave us some of that perspective. That's interesting. Why do you think that is? I think it's more difficult to try a case in front of a jury. And uh, at least in Ontario, particularly with motor vehicle accidents, tort reform has taken a hold in the province of Ontario, such that there's a deductible, there's a very difficult threshold. A lot of personal injury lawyers are of the view that since the jury doesn't know that, it makes it more challenging to be successful in a car accident case in front of a jury. Okay, I see that. It makes yeah. that makes sense. Whereas a judge understands there's insurance on the other side and that there are these challenges with threshold and there are deductibles to the damages ultimately awarded. A lot of lawyers in Ontario prefer to try these cases in front of a judge only. And it turns out that it's the defense that typically files the jury notice in Ontario. Isn't that interesting? It is, yeah. I know it's it's definitely a lot less work and stress when you're trying a case in front of a judge. And the rules of evidence are generally relaxed a little bit because the judge can decide what's relevant and not 
or what's prejudicial and not. And a jury trial is 10 times the amount of work and 100 times the amount of stress in my experience. And I'm glad that you shared the fact that American juries have all the same challenges, maybe more challenges with respect to bias because of the information that's been propagated by insurance companies about, like you said, the personal injury lottery. Yeah, they do. They really do. A lot of it depends on the county as well. There are some counties where that bias has deeper roots. And Philadelphia County, for example, I've generally seen that bias to not be as strong as some of other counties and states where I've where I've tried cases. But you have to take that into account when you're trying the case and you have to present your case if you're in a conservative jurisdiction with jurors who are generally biased in such a way and present your client in such a way that they have some bond with the jurors so that the jurors can overcome that bias and you tailor your case based upon geographically where you're on trial, which again, shouldn't make much difference. The outcome should be the same if the facts are the same in one county versus another, but people's biases and prejudices and upbringings are going to vary differently and they'll view the case through the different lens. Is that something that comes into your consideration as well when deciding whether to bring a case to trial? Definitely. Our, our rules, procedural rules, I won't get into the, to the weeds of them, but they do allow a great amount of flexibility for lawyers to determine where they can bring the lawsuit. And defense lawyers will then file motions to move the lawsuit if they can do that. But we always look at where the potential lawsuit will be tried, even if the case doesn't go to trial, and most don't. The settlement of the case is always influenced by what the insurance companies and the lawyers think the jury's going to do. So you're going to still settle the case, maybe in some of these other more conservative counties, but you're not going to settle it for as much as you would in Philadelphia County. So when I talk to my clients about cases and I mention juries and judges and trial, I could see them immediately get concerned with that aspect because that's a stressful process for clients as well. And I say, doesn't mean we're going to trial, but we have to assume, and I assume every case I have is going to be going to trial because that's the only way that we'll ever get a fair settlement is if the defense believes that we are able and ready to go to trial. So when I use those words, it shouldn't mean that we certainly are going to trial. It's just, let's just have that mindset. And share a little bit about that because that's important. I think personal injury lawyers understand that or, or even defense lawyers understand that, but maybe some of our audience doesn't understand why it's so important to develop a case and in a way that it's ready to go to trial if it's necessary. It is because the defense lawyers and the insurance companies for the defendants, they know based on how you've prepared the case over the year, what experts you've assembled, what expert were you've produced, how credible and reputable those experts are. The insurance companies will know if you're a trial lawyer, they'll also look at your biography and your history. And if you've never tried a case, they're going to know that. If you have tried cases and had big verdicts and also big losses, the insurance companies are going to be more intimidated by that and more fair in negotiating with you. But you have to have your witnesses lined up. You have to have done all of the discovery work. You have to have trial technicians ready to go, video trial, video depositions 
ready to be played to the jury. When you are in that position on the eve of trial, and, the, and you have to be ready to go, and we are ready to go, but that's when the insurance companies will take you seriously. And I think that's an important point because sometimes clients may not understand why we want to hire certain experts or have them assessed or get opinions. Sometimes clients will say, well, it's a straightforward case. They'll tell us, my case is very straightforward. Why can't you just settle it? It's important that they understand that the insurance company looks at that and the value that they ultimately pay on the case depends on their assessment of the risk at trial. Yeah, that's what it's all about, trying to assess risk and gauge what the jury might do in a case. And we do, we spend a lot of money on experts, but that money is well spent. It packages your case up better. We also do things such as we have animations in certain cases. We'll do what's called a day in the life video of our client. We'll, we'll have a camera crew go to a client's house to film what it's like for that client on a day in and day out basis in terms of your daily routine, your showering, we're making meals. It's hard sometimes to convey the impact an accident has on someone in words alone or even in photographs. And we do these videos and we'll present them to the defense before we try the case because they're entitled to that information. But when the defense sees you have all of this evidence ready to go and ready to present to a jury, they're going to be more likely to negotiate in good faith. And I love to try cases. That's why I wanted to become a lawyer. I'd much rather be in a courtroom than pushing paper without a doubt. But generally speaking, it's in my client's best interest if we can resolve the case. It gives them certainty. Even if you win the trial, there's an appeal and there's additional time required for that. My, my goal is to try and get a fair settlement for the client rather than take the risks of an unpredictable jury trial. I also read your closing on that trial because it was linked to the uh, podcast you had done. I can't remember what the theme was now, but something about the, the job was to like speak up loudly or something. Yeah, loudly and clearly. Loudly and clearly. Tell us a little bit about closing and sort of how you tie everything together and make a theme. It's, it appeared to me that there was a theme in that case. Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. I think it's important to have a very simple theme in every case that you try, regardless of how simple or complex it is, you have to have a theme. And it's something we start thinking about from the onset of the case. And then we develop it and modify it over time. And a lot of times we'll test themes to focus groups to see what they like and don't like so that when it comes time for trial, we are confident and prepared with the theme of our case. And in that case where the gentleman lost the tip of his finger, our theme was that the defense manufacturer had a responsibility to speak up loudly and clearly when they recognized there was a hazard. So loudly and clearly was our theme. And we started developing that theme long before trial when I would take the depositions of the corporate designers of this particular product, I would use those words loudly and clearly, and I would get admissions from them so that I knew at trial I could use this, this theme. And then I would present evidence that the manufacturer became aware of potential hazards. Even if it was sold with the guard, they were aware that people would remove the guards and they had representatives work on this machine. So my theme was the representatives should have spoke up loudly and clearly about the need for a guard on this machine. 
that was a very effective theme, I think, in that case, because it, it resonated in the closing. And I remember you were making reference to the uh, testimony of witnesses in your closing address to the jury. It really helps the jury understand what would otherwise be a complex case. And I can get the defense to essentially agree that they have this responsibility to speak up loudly and clearly, and they didn't do it. That's all a jury needs to know. I, I tried a case this summer involving the death of a man at a chicken factory, and my theme was the defendant knew about the hazard, they talked about the hazard, and they ignored the hazard. It's a theme of three we, we try and use if we can. They knew about it, they talked about it, and they ignored it. That was the three parts of my cases, and the whole time I presented evidence, it was either you knew about it, or you talked about it, and you ignored it. And I, the whole trial was was that theme, and in the end, the jury uh, found in our favor. And now, is that particularly important on liability, or do you also develop themes on damages? Generally, our themes are on liability part of the case, and then the damages is a we try and do our best to present the case 50-50, 50% of the evidence on damages and 50% on liability so that if you do win the case, you get fair compensation because you can't just skip over that. Um, but the theme itself generally is just on the liability aspect of the case. Yeah. And on product uh, cases like the ones you're talking about, the defective products, is liability always the contentious issue or the majority of the time the contentious issue? Yes, it is almost always. And I think the reason is, in a lot of these product liability cases, the manufacturers, believe it or not, don't have liability insurance, or at least the first million dollars of liability is their own pocketbook because they've made the decision that it's cheaper to pay out lawsuits than to pay for liability insurance. So when you try and negotiate or settle a case against a company that's in the business of making money and selling products, they don't always understand the risks like an insurance company might be, whereas an insurance company is in the business of not just making money, but settling claims and negotiating losses. But manufacturers tend to dig their heels in on these cases because they want to defend their products, which I understand, but it makes settling the case more challenging. Yeah, that's a good point. So Dan, you, you told us a little bit, you enjoy being in the courtroom. That's why you became a lawyer. Tell us a little bit about that. What inspired you to become a, a lawyer and particularly in this area of law and uh, ultimately a trial lawyer? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's uh, it's something that I always envisioned myself from a, a young adult. I liked the idea of logical arguments, not necessarily arguing, but the logic behind them. I took logic classes in college and it really caught my attention. I liked the idea of the competitive nature of being a lawyer. I was, we've talked about this, an athlete, I consider myself an athlete growing up. I love to play ice hockey and, and other sports as well. And in those games, you have a winner and you have a loser. And the same thing is true with practicing law. There's a winning side and a losing side in theory of those cases that go to trial. If you settle, it can be a win-win or a lose-lose, but the entire length of the case from start to settlement or trial, it's a competition and it's a zero-sum game where everything that helps you hurts the defense and vice versa. And then in law school, I got a job offer at a large big law law firm in Philadelphia, great law firm. And I was doing defense work for the first few years and I was representing insurance companies and their insureds in 
these types of lawsuits. And I enjoyed that because I got into court a lot. I got to try a lot of cases. But then I realized that I was going to get more personal satisfaction representing the victims of the accidents as opposed to the insurance companies and the corporations. And so I've been doing that for the last 20 years exclusively is just representing the victims of the accidents. Excellent. That's good. We talked a little bit about tort reform, or at least I did here in Ontario. How is that in the state of Pennsylvania? It's improving. We've We've had some limitations on the medical malpractice lawsuits. There's been a lot of tort reform in that particular area because I guess for years, the legislature assumed that insurance rates were being driven up by lawsuits and they were losing medical professionals. With regard to non-medical lawsuits, we have a fair system right now. There's some minor limitations, but we don't have any caps on how much a jury can award. And we don't have significant limitations other than that. We have a fair system with with some reasonable limitations. But the medical malpractice tort reform, I think, is being scaled back. There was a recent change which made it easier to pick the county where you would file your lawsuit, whereas it used to be very limited. So that's been one positive development over the years. But I also, I've practiced in other jurisdictions that have much more severe tort reform caps on liability, no product li- or no product liability, defective standard, or some states have what's called contributory negligence, which means even if the defendant is 99% at fault, if the victim is 1% responsible, they get nothing. And that's an old, in my opinion, draconian hard rule, but that still exists in some jurisdictions. So I am thankful that I'm based in Pennsylvania where we have a, a more fair system. Yeah, that's good to hear. So Dan, so anyone that is looking for you or wants more information on you or your practice, uh, how do they find you? They can call me anytime at 215-988-9400 or go to our website. It's Galco Hessel, but it's spelled differently than it sounds. It's G-O-L-K-O-W-H-E-S-S-E-L.com or they can email me anytime, dhessel at galcohessel.com. All right. And we'll also add your contact details in the show notes. In terms of the states, I know you mentioned obviously Pennsylvania, but do you take on cases in other states as well? Yeah, I'm licensed in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and I handle cases on a case-by-case basis in other states on the eastern coast. And I can do that even though I'm not licensed, what's called Pro Hoc Vice, which means I find a sponsor in that state and they vouch for my credibility. (laughs) And with any luck, I'm approved and I can practice in other states. So I've handled cases and trials in Washington, D.C. and Virginia and North Carolina, uh, a few other states, but those are the the primary ones. And I know we're talking generally about personal injury. What's your favorite type of case to take on if there is one? I would say a product liability case in the workplace environment. I really get satisfaction out of helping blue-collar industrial workers who put in an honest day's work and sometimes they're just subjected to dangerous machinery through no fault of their own. Many of these cases, the workers do something they've been told not to do or their employer has done something like remove a guard. And then in a trial, it's really easy to defend the manufacturer and say, oh, the guard was missing or 
you were trained not to put your hand in that spot. But the reality is we all know what happens in an industrial environment. Workers are pressured to do their job and do their job quickly and take risks that maybe on paper they're told not to take. And then they get injured just trying to earn a dollar for their family and they want to get home to their family at the end of the day. And I've seen a lot of times where that doesn't happen because a machine wasn't as safe as it could be. It's those cases where I represent workers where I can, in the end, hopefully make a difference in their lives that brings me the most satisfaction. They're also the hardest cases to produce and try because it's a lot of work and a lot of money. So in these big companies, and I I take that as a challenge as well. That's great. Anything else you want to add? I guess I would just end by saying to accident victims, and I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and you give out great advice to people. I know the process can be very intimidating. I've seen it in the eyes of my clients when they come to meet with me the first time. They're nervous and I try to not be a person to make anyone nervous, but I can see they're intimidated by the court process. When they go to court, it can be an intimidating, overwhelming process. So I just would say to people, meet with your lawyers, take the the risk, and it's going to be intimidating. But in the end, my experience has been the system's generally fair to people. And if you have that end goal in mind, then the intimidation factor will be worth it. That's great. That's excellent. Thank you, Dan. 